masculine? Like, good evening. <laughs> just gross. <laughs> Why? Okay, that's embarrassing. So anyway, hi. <laughs> Welcome to Summer Guy Alpha. Uh, I'm excited to be kicking this thing off, you guys. How's your summer going so far? That good, huh? Cool. <laughs> uh, remember when we were like little kids and summer meant like getting snow cones in the park with mom and dad and like pool parties with your friends and now summer just means either sleeping or if you have a job, you're not in school right now and it just means extra hours of work. So super grim. But Summer Calpha gets to be <laughs> a little ray of light in the midst of that. Um, and I'm super grateful to be doing, uh, we're doing part two of our missionary biography series that we started last summer. Um, and the reason we're doing that is because sometimes when we are reading stories of men and women who faithfully walked with God in the Bible and they lived in obedience to him, they can be inspiring, but they feel really far away. You know, like far away culturally, far away historically. Um, their experiences are so different from our experiences. Like, I, I've i never had God speak to me out of a burning bush. I'm not saying it couldn't happen, but that's not my lived experience. And so the goal is to talk about men and women who have lived outside of the Bible that still had lives that honored Jesus to the point where after they died, their life legacy continued growing the kingdom, right? And that's what I want my life to look like for sure. But I still find that some of those missionary biographies feel far away. Like even, even though we're trying to make them feel more tangible and relatable. Um, like last summer, for example, we told the story of Corey Ten Boom. Do you, were you guys there for that? Do you remember? Incredible. Absolutely a story worth sharing and remembering and celebrating. But like, I didn't live through the Holocaust, and I have no idea how to fathom what it's like to lose friends and family in concentration camps. You know, it's still a super far away concept for me. Um, and so I'm super excited tonight to talk about two of my favorite missionaries and two of maybe the most famous missionaries who have ever lived. You're getting a two for one special because we're talking about Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. And to me, their story is really tangible. Um, they grew up as like typical American kids, um, both grew up in families that loved the Lord and heard the gospel from a young age, um, and they met each other in college, and that's also where they met all of the people that ended up serving on their mission team with them. And that's, that's my story. I met my husband in college, so I'm getting emotional already, which started. I always cry when I'm on the mic, and I hate it. <laughs> Like, that's my story. I met my husband in college, I met my mission team in college, and I couldn't have known then that that was what the Lord had for me. And I, I feel, I think, I feel what Elizabeth and Jim felt as they were waiting on the Lord to open a door for them to serve him. And it was in college where they met him. So I'm, I'm excited that's where we're at. Um, and so I hope this resonates with some of you guys. But I'm going to pray before I dive into their story, and then we're just going to go straight there because it's pretty dense. So Jesus... Thank you for the honor of getting to share um, this incredible story with my friends, God. Thank you for those that are here um, giving up part of their, their summer, a, a fun summer evening in the sweltering 107 degree heat to be together and seek your face and um, strive to live lives that would really transform the kingdom of God. Um, God, that's what we want. We want to be participants with you in the building of your kingdom and um, I pray that tonight you would reveal to us the best way, the best way 
God, to lay down what we have and pick up what you have for us so that we can further your kingdom, introduce more people to you, your loving kindness, God, and partner with you in your work as we were intended to from the beginning, God. I pray all of these things in your name. Amen. All right, so Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. Jim Elliot, um, he was a bit of a character. He was kind of a class clown type. Um, he was also a bit of a punk, if I can say that. Like, I feel bad. He's holier than I am for sure. But a bit of a punk. Like, he had a holier than thou attitude. Um, growing up, he told all his friends, like, I'm going to be celibate like the apostle, the apostle Paul was celibate. That's the highest calling for a Christian. So I'm never going to look twice at a woman. I'm going to be single forever because that's how the Lord wants to use me. Um, and all of his friends were, like, understandably super irritated by this. Um, and then in college, he met Elizabeth Howard and immediately ate his words because she was beautiful and incredible. And he fell madly in love with her. Um, but he was still stubborn and wanted to be seen as this holier-than-thou guy, so he put off pursuing her. So they were one of those, like, will-they-won't-they they couples. Do you guys know anybody like that? That's my story. And it's a miracle Pam and Jonathan are still friends with me because I swear before Richard and I got together, like, there was a day that you told Pam, like, man, Lindsay's going to make a really great wife for somebody someday. And she was like, you're embarrassing me. <laughs> you fool. Um, but that that's Jim's story. So he... He met Elizabeth, they were both studying Greek, and his goal was just to become a better student of the Bible. He didn't know how the Lord wanted to use him yet. He had a burden for foreign missions, but he didn't want to pick a place and a people group to minister to without the Lord's blessing. So he was just kind of biding his time and waiting on the Lord to open a door. Elizabeth, on the other hand, was also studying Greek, but her goal was to one day translate the New Testament into the language of an unreached people group. So super lofty ambition, incredible woman. Um, and they fell in love. But uh, eventually the Lord honored Jim's request to go into the mission field and called him to Shandia, Ecuador to minister to the Quechua people. And so Jim and Elizabeth uh, went on a romantic night walk to talk about their future and consider which one of them would have to give up their future plans to be with the other. And they ended their walk in a cemetery, as you do when you're going on, yeah, a cute date, cute cemetery date. And <laughs> they sat down on a bench and just entered a time of prayer. And while they were praying, the moon rose behind them and cast the shadow of a cross on one of the headstones in between them on the bench. And they knew that the Lord was asking them to trust him and continue serving them and serving him in the way that they felt called, even if that meant being separated from each other. So Jim left for Ecuador and left Elizabeth behind in the US. Um, he did go with his friend Pete, who he met in college, and they started ministering in Shandia. Uh, they did like, they provided basic medical care to the natives, they taught some English classes. But Jim's real goal was to introduce the Quechua to Jesus. So basically take a Quechua's hand, take Jesus's hand, put them in each other, and then step back and let the Holy Spirit minister and disciple so that the Quechua people would be able to walk with him and um, in a self-sufficient way kind of build and sustain their own church and their own ministry. He wanted them to be the missionaries to their own people. Um, so that was what he and Pete did. While they were there, the Quechua told them about another people group in Ecuador who they called the Alcas, 
which means savages. So respectfully, I'm not gonna call them that. I'm gonna call them the Wild Ani, which is what they call themselves. But they were known as the Alcas or the savages because they lived so deep in the rainforest that no one could ever find their settlements. Um, but anytime they came out of the rainforest and interacted with anyone else from outside their tribe, that person never made it back alive. They were incredibly violent, hostile people. Um, and they wanted nothing to do with the outside world. And Jim, Jim's heart immediately broke for these people, and he knew that God wanted to engage with them, that he wanted to initiate a relationship with them. And so he began to pray for an open door to the Waodani. Unbeknownst to Jim, just two years before he arrived in Ecuador, a young woman named Dayuma became the first Waodani defector in known history. So basically, uh, her family was caught in this cycle of revenge and bitterness, and they were killing each other because the Waodani had one value, and it was autonomy. So my autonomy is, you know, the most important thing in my life to me, and if you infringe on it, I can spear you to death. And then your family can spear me to death because I infringed on your autonomy. And then uh, my family can spear your family to death, and it just goes on and on. And so Dayuma was at a place where her family was almost entirely killed off because of these revenge killings. Actually, seven out of every 10 adult Waodani deaths were homicides at the time. So she escaped for her life and ended up with, in the care of a woman named Rachel Saint, who was also a missionary to Ecuador, and she ended up becoming a believer. So while Jim is praying for this open door, God is slowly sliding pieces into place um, for an encounter with the Waodani. Uh, so after a time of serving in Shandia, Jim gets word that shortly after he left, Elizabeth received her first assignment for translating the Bible, and her assignment was actually to San Miguel, Ecuador. So this whole time she'd been living just a few cities away. Um, and Jim, his partnership and his team had been growing, and as it had been growing, more and more couples were serving with him in Ecuador. And he realized, oh, like, I don't, I don't have to be single for the Lord to use me. Like, I can be in a partnership. Uh, so he reached out to Elizabeth, but he was still waiting on the Lord to honor and bless their marriage before he proposed. Um, and so they both continued their separate work, translating the Bible and ministering to the Quechua, until one day the mission station that Jim served at in Shandia flooded, and it destroyed everything they had built, the hospital, the church, Jim's house. And at the same time, Elizabeth lost all of the progress she had been working on translating the Bible into Colorado Indian. It was tragically lost in transit on a bus ride. It was strapped onto the bus and fell off, and she lost all of her years of work. So with both of them starting over, they were praying for direction from the Lord. And one of Jim's friends, actually Rachel Saint's brother, Nate Saint, at this same time, um, he was a missionary pilot, so he would go from station to station delivering supplies and news in his airplane. He spotted a Waodani settlement from his airplane. So Jim, Elizabeth, Pete, um, and then Jim's friends from America that were coming to join them, and Nate all came together and prayed and said, this is, this is our open door. Like, none of us have anything we're working on anymore, and we found the wild on it. We better step on it before we lose them again. So they began to devise a plan to engage with the wild Ani. And they prayed to the Lord to intervene, um, but they 
mostly relied on human wisdom. So Elizabeth at one point suggested that she and Jim and their newborn daughter, they're married at this point, would go down the river in a canoe past the Waodani settlement and engage with them. Um, and the team decided, yeah, no, <laughs> like, you're way too vulnerable. We're not gonna have a newborn get killed. We're gonna send all of our strong men. So we're gonna send all five men into Waodani territory. And they, they agreed that that was the right thing to do. Um, and Jim, finding out about Dayuma's existence, went to Dayuma to learn some phrases in Waodani so he would be able to at least have some friendly conversation. But they decided not to tell Rachel what the plan was because they didn't want her to talk them out of it or report them to the Missionary Association. So they're doing all of this kind of under the table operation. They called it Operation Alka. You can show the picture of the team. So down there, um, Elizabeth and Jim are the taller ones. Um, in the middle are Pete and Olive Fleming. And on the other side are Ed and Mary Lou McCulley. Uh, over here on the right are Nate and Marge Saint and their children. And then in the top right are Barbara and Roger Udarian. And you can go to the next slide. So they began what they called Operation Alka. And the plan was over a span of 13 weeks to drop gifts from the airplane into Waodani territory in the hopes that they would see we, you know, we come in peace or whatever. And Jim would literally yell out of the airplane the few phrases he had learned from Dayuma in the hopes that they would respond favorably. In the first couple weeks, the Waodani didn't even come out from the trees. Um, but after a while, they would come out and slowly pick the gifts off of the line attached to the airplane. By the end of the 13 weeks, they were even leaving their own gifts behind. So that picture of them holding the parrot, the parrot was a gift from the Waodani that they tied up in a basket. Um, and so they thought, you know, this is it. Like, we've made peaceful contact. This is our moment. We've got to go in and engage them face to face. And so um, the men got in that yellow airplane one by one, and, or two by, yeah, Nate had to be there, obviously, to fly them in. But they uh, found that sandy strip, which became known to the world as Palm Beach, and used that as a makeshift airstrip into Waodani territory. And they built a treehouse and decided to live there until the Waodani came out to meet them. And um, that picture of Marge Saint on the radio is her in contact with the men after they made their first successful contact with the Waodani. So they became the first men in the history of the world to see a Waodani person and live. So while they were there in the treehouse, um, that Waodani man, who they called George, but his name was Nikiwi, uh, came out and started like eating their food and touching their airplane and just generally hanging out. Um, he invited a young woman to join him and also an, an old Waodani woman. And the men were so excited about this, they spent all day with him and they thought, we finally achieved what we set out to accomplish and this is only going to lead to greater and greater gains. And so they called the wives after they had left and said, we just had our first successful contact with the Waodani Pray Girls because tomorrow's the day. And it was. Sorry. Wouldn't be me if I didn't cry. So, <laughs> and it was. So, unbeknownst to them, Ninkiwi was not supposed to be with the young woman that he was with. They were in a forbidden engagement. And the old woman that was with them was their chaperone. So when they went back into the rainforest, they separated from their chaperone and were found by their tribe alone. And when they threatened Ninkiwi, he panicked. And he said, we had to be alone, we were fleeing, and we got separated from our chaperone because the foreigners tried to kill us. So the Waodani decided, instead of being mad at Nankiwi and causing a bunch of family drama, let's just go kill the foreigners. So the next day, 
they came out and yeah, they, they sent women ahead of them. No, I know. They sent the women ahead of them uh, to meet the five missionaries and kind of throw them off their guard. And then from behind, they ambushed them and one by one, speared them to death. Now, the wives of the missionaries didn't find out about this for weeks. They had to send a search party in to identify each of the bodies. They never found Ed's, but they found the other four. The men had guns with them that they had not used. Later in their journals, they found a pact that the men had agreed that they would not kill a Wadagami because they knew where they were going after they died. And they knew the Wadagami didn't know. So, Alright, ready for part two. We're going to take a little scripture break, and then we're going to pick up with Elizabeth's story. But uh, where we're at now, Operation Alka is over. The whole world knows about it. Um, but as far as they know, the window of opportunity to reach the wild army has been lost. Um, Elizabeth, though, in finding out that Jim had died, she said the first thing that she did when she prayed, she didn't pray for forgiveness for the wild Donnie, she didn't need to. She didn't pray for her husband or for herself. She prayed, God, if there's anything else you want to do for the wild Donnie, I'm available. She knew that what the Lord had started and what Jim had given his life to was going to be for nothing if she held bitterness or if she gave up. So it made me think, when I was reading their story, it made me think of this passage in Philippians 3. It says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. And it continues in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which for Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So what touches me so incredibly much about the Elliot story, in case you couldn't tell, is um, that they're just people. Like, they made some incredibly wise decisions, and they also made some incredibly foolish, foolish decisions. Um, and it was all for the sake of serving Jesus. They were walking in simple obedience, not knowing what the outcome would be. Um, but I was thinking about the things that they gave up along the way. Jim, from the very beginning, was willing to give up his relationship with Elizabeth if it meant serving the Lord the way that God intended. And he did give her up for a time. And God honored that and gave her back when the time was right and blessed their partnership, and thank God for their partnership because Jim's story may be over, but Elizabeth's wasn't yet. Yeah. Mm. Um, they also gave up, Elizabeth had to give up her translation work, right? Like she had majored in Greek to do this translation. She had gone to Ecuador to learn Colorado Indian, had worked on half, uh, she finished first and second Corinthians before her work was lost. Wow. 
And then, before marrying Jim, she learned Quechua, thinking, if I'm going to join Jim on the mission field, then maybe I can translate the Bible into Quechua. And then Shandia flooded, and they went out to serve the Waodani. So as far as she knew, her dream and her hope and her training were all for nothing. But the Lord doesn't operate that way. Um, what we lose, what we suffer loss for the sake of Christ, it's gain for the kingdom. Right? And that's how God's kingdom works. It's this kingdom of the upside down, where the first are last. Those who give the most gain the most. And the Elliots experienced that firsthand. With Operation Alka, they, they were operating in human wisdom. They were so excited and zealous to do this thing for the Lord. And um, Elizabeth was left out of the mission because of her supposed vulnerability as a woman and a mother. And Rachel was left out of the operation because they were worried she'd ruin the whole thing and spoil, you know, the secret. Um, the irony is that it is Elizabeth and Rachel that ended up <laughs> saving the Waodani tribe. So you can pull up the pictures, Andrew. Sorry, they're a little later. Literally. Oh, that's all I got. That, oh, no! Okay. Um, okay. Well... They were cool. <laughs> I'll just tell you. So, um, eventually, uh, yes, thank you. So, Elizabeth, uh, after leaving the station that they were operating out of to reach the Wadani, she went back to Shandia to see Jim's progress with the Quechua. And the church that he had planted and given into the hands of the Quechuas had grown, and they held their first Bible conference slash revival on their own that had over 300 in attendance. Um, while she was there, she saw many people baptized, one of which was a prominent witch doctor in the area who had given up his prosperous business as a witch doctor to serve Jesus. Um, as she served in Shandia and waited on the Lord for her next step, um, Dayuma's aunts came out of the jungle looking for her. And they wanted her to go back with them to prove to the rest of her family that she was alive. While they were out visiting Dayuma, Elizabeth, upon hearing that they were there, immediately went to meet them, and she and Rachel formed a friendship with them. So when they took Dayuma back to see the rest of her family, uh, it wasn't long before they came back out of the rainforest with an invitation for Elizabeth and Rachel to come and live with the Raudani. So, Elizabeth and her two-year-old daughter, Valerie, and Rachel Saint, uh, moved in with the Waodani the next day. They had no home there. There was no like shelter built for them or anything like that. Um, but they went in faith that the Lord wasn't done reaching the Waodani. Yeah. So uh, on the top left is a picture of Dayuma, who became the first Waodani preacher in history. Uh, Rachel is sitting next to her, and Elizabeth is behind her. They were her Bible teachers, and so they would teach her throughout the week scripture so that she could teach her own people. Um, on the top right is a picture of two of the men that had speared Nate Saint to death, and they're baptizing Nate Saint's daughter. Uh, they later, they had become believers, <laughs> and, <laughs> so sorry, <laughs> um, and the missionary wives had come and brought their children to meet the people that their dads had saved, and the children came to know Christ through that. On the bottom left 
is Elizabeth uh, getting a recording of Waodani language that she eventually used to transcribe <laughs> and um, write a version of the New Testament in Waodani, the first one in existence. They ended up calling it uh, God's Carvings, and they said in um, their Waodani way, they said, uh, since Elizabeth has brought us God's carvings, we've learned to walk his path. And because of her faithfulness, the uh, murder rates in the Waodani dropped by a whopping 92%. And then the bottom right is her in Battery with their Waodani friends. Um, you can go back to those quotes, Andrew, I'm sorry, I'm putting you to work. And this is a quote from one of Elizabeth Elliot's journals. It says, to be a follower of the crucified means sooner or later a personal encounter with the cross, and the cross always entails loss. Um, what I find so profound about Elizabeth and Jim is that uh, they were just doing the best with what they had, right? It wasn't for them to see tomorrow. It was only for them to do what was required of them in the moment. And they did the very best they could. But the reality is that God was working all the time behind the scenes to weave people in and out of the story so that eventually he could make contact with the Waodani in the way that he wanted to. Um, and what Elizabeth and Jim saw as a gain or a loss really didn't matter in the end. Um, because in Elizabeth's own words, when she went to live with the Waodani, it should have been difficult, it should have been uncomfortable, um, but what she experienced as a loss ended up being the greatest common ground that she could have had with the Waodani. Because when she said, my husband was speared to death, there were another 10 Waodani women who said, my husband was speared to death. And when her daughter Valerie told the other children, my daddy was speared to death, all the other children said, well, my daddy was, or my granddaddy was, or my uncle was. And so, what Elizabeth experienced as loss was her biggest gain in her relationship with the Waodani, that common ground. Um, and so I was thinking of the application for us, and um, the person that came to mind was uh, the Bible character Jacob. That sounds strange, but hang with me. Um, so I've been reading Genesis, that's my devotional right now, and I'm in Genesis 32, which is where Jacob wrestles with God. Uh, I've always found that story really weird, to be honest. I have no idea what's going on there. Um, but in looking back at the whole story of Jacob, um, I've been piecing together that he is a, is a guy that before he was even born, God blessed him. God had his blessing and favor on him and said he was going to use Jacob as a conduit of blessing to the people around him. Jacob conversely, spent his whole life scheming and manipulating and plotting to get the very blessing that God had already given him, right? That's like his defining characteristic. He's manipulative, and he doesn't care who he hurts yeah. as long as he gets the blessing. And in the story where he wrestles with the Lord, um, it, it, it's weird because it seems like Jacob wins in the end. Like, he has a hold of God, and God's like, I gotta go. And Jacob's like, not until you bless me. And it seems demanding and arrogant. But the reality is that God came down to wrestle Jacob out of Jacob. And in the end, Jacob realized that the only source of blessing that he could trust, it wasn't his own schemes, it was God. 
And if he let God go without asking for the blessing, he was never going to attain it. Yeah. And so he, he doesn't. He asks the only promise keeper who makes promises and keeps them to keep his promise to Jacob. And God does. He renames him Israel. And that ends up being uh, the line that the Messiah comes out of. And so in thinking of Jim and Elizabeth's story, um, the things that they gave up, the things that they lost, God turned to gain. And the things that they didn't, God came down himself and wrestled out of them. He wrestled the Elizabeth and the Jim out of them. And he said, no, my blessing's already with the Waodani. Like, I've already made a way to reach them. I don't need you to scheme and plot to get to them. And Elizabeth and Jim were the most blessed when they allowed the Lord his hand in that. And when they tried to do things their own way, it didn't impede God at all. Like, it didn't impede his interaction with the Waodani. It only, it only hurt them. And so, um, like I said, they... They made this commitment to God in college, couldn't have known that Jim was going to die, that Elizabeth was going to end up translating. She ended up, did you know she's a contributor to the NIV translation? Like how many of you have an NIV Bible? Elizabeth Elliot is like a contributor to that. She was a, one of the stylistic consultants for the NIV Bible. Um, she wrote over 24 books. She toured the US and ended up having her own radio program called Gateway to Joy. Um, and then, I think rather poetically, she died at 88 due to dementia. So in the end, she lost her greatest gift and talent of all her mind. And yet, their life is marked by so much gain. And they're known as two of the most famous missionaries in the world because, be because of their story, so many men and women ended up giving their lives to join the mission field because Jim and, Elliot, Jim and Elizabeth paved the way. So I realize I'm kind of babbling at this point. I just think it's incredible. If you go online, you can find a bunch of copies of like their journal entries, and um, you can find Elizabeth's podcasts and recordings of her radio show, and they're all, they're all worth a listen. But I don't want to get caught up in these missionary biographies thinking like, oh, they're on some sort of pedestal um, or anything like that, because they really were just human beings taking simple steps of obedience with what was directly in front of them. Yeah. And so, um, I want to leave you with one last thing. I'm sorry if this has been scattered or emotional. Um, that's just how summer Catholic goes, guys. Like, we're just doing the best with what's in front of me, genuinely. Um, and we're surviving. But I want to leave you with one more thing. Um, the way that Jim got his call to Ecuador, he uh, heard from his brother while he was in college that this station in Shandia had been abandoned and needed someone to take it over. But he didn't want to go until he was sure that that was where the Lord wanted him to go. And then that summer, because he was a Greek major, he attended a language boot camp. Sounds super fun. And while he was there, he coincidentally was paired with a Quechua uh, from Ecuador and began to learn the language over the summer. And so that was what solidified for him the call to go to Ecuador. Um, and we're in this, I asked you guys how your summer was going, and I got like, I got some okay responses, it's not bad. Um, but I mean, it was during the summer, it was during a period of waiting, and um, asking the Lord to open a door, and not being willing to jump into something without God's blessing, um, unlike Jacob, that Jim received the very blessing he'd been asking for, and received that confirmation of the call. And so while we're in this summer period, and we're going to spend it listening to all these 
missionary stories and maybe considering like what our life really means. And you know, some of these stories are really insane. And like, we're gonna question, are, are, am I called to the jungles of Ecuador? I don't know. And honestly, most of us probably aren't. Probably all of us aren't, but who knows. Um, but I, I just wanna challenge us to trust that God is the promise giver and the promise keeper. And that the blessing and the work and the purpose that we're chasing after has already been placed on us. And it is for God to reveal and to pull those things out of us. And it's going to be in these waiting periods in the summers of our lives, whether it's this literal summer or just a waiting period, that that still small voice of God is going to speak. And it's for us to listen or to not listen, to respond or to not respond, to give up what he's asking us to give up or to not. And the reality is that God's work is going to continue with or without us on board, but it's such a blessing to be on board. We're still talking about these people today. I mean, they're both gone, but they live on through the people that they discipled faithfully and the things that they gave up. And you can go to the last quote, Andrew. Now this is, you've probably heard this or some version of it. Uh, this is Jim Elliott's most famous quote. Um, it's was found in his journals after he died. It said, he, it says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So as foolish as things may seem to us, um, if we take this summer or this waiting season in between a new job or a new semester or whatever your next step is, the internship for one person here, <laughs> um, if we take that waiting period and we commit ourselves to not keeping what we can't hold on to anyway um, and take hold of what we cannot lose. I think we might all in here have a story like Jim and Elizabeth Elliot someday. Um, I'm gonna stop talking because I don't want, <laughs> I don't want to be that person that says like, here's what you should learn or take away or the great lesson of somebody's life because I'm sure Jim and Elizabeth wouldn't that like they never intended for their lives to be up on a slideshow for everyone to see um, so you can take from the rest of it what you will but thanks for coming to summer Kyle for giving up this time um, to really look at the lives of um, people who maybe were a little wiser than us or have been around a little longer than us and have already walked the walk and talked the talk um, I just, I don't want it to go to waste, you know, like I don't want to do another summer of this and then be like, well, that was cool. I've got a story to tell, you know, if I ever need some coffee talk, like this is real. This was, these were real lives. And um, like I said, this is, their story is my story. I met my husband in college. I met my mission team in college. And so who's to say that I won't be called somewhere crazy like Ecuador? Or who's to say that ASU isn't a really crazy place to be called to? And I don't know. Anyway, I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna sing a missionary anthem one more time, just because it's so good. Jesus, we love you, God. We love you. And we thank you for your intentionality. Thank you for um, the way that you use our mistakes and our blunders, and you bless them anyway, because you're a God that doesn't give up on your people. Um, I thank you that you are faithful through all of our seasons of questioning and doubt. 
I thank you that you are faithful when um, we give things up and faithful when we don't. But I pray that you would help us to give those things up so that we can have the fullest amount of enjoyment, God, the fullest participation that we can have in your work because there is no greater gift. I thank you that like Jacob, you've already set your blessing and your promises on us and we don't have to scheme and chase and fight to take hold of them, God. We just have to trust. And that sounds really nebulous because there's not a whole lot of um, practical steps in trust. It's, it's just a, um, a position of the heart. It's just a way, a motive of living, God, a mode of living. So I pray that um, for each one of us in here, that's going to look different. I pray that you would meet us where we're at, that you would remind us of Jim and Elizabeth's great sacrifice throughout the week and show us ways that we can lay things down so that they would be lost to us maybe in the moment, but gain, gain for the whole kingdom, gain for you, Jesus, and then for us in eternity. I thank you for your word for Paul who says that uh, we can count all things as loss to take hold of what Christ took hold of for us on the cross. And I thank you that even Paul said that he hadn't totally gotten a hold of it yet, but that he was going to forget what was behind and strain towards what was ahead. God, I pray that over each person in here tonight, that they would be straining, straining towards what you have for them, Jesus, and forgetting maybe this past semester or the last wrong step they took, God, and they would just take that next simple step of obedience because you do honor those, Jesus. I pray all these things in your name. I pray that you would receive this worship, God, joyfully, that it would be a sweet, sweet sound to your ears and that we would mean it when we sing it.